Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. All right, you may take a seat. Some great worship this morning. Thank you, band. Uh, so we have run out of outside speakers, and here I am. <laughs> so sorry about that. But hey, we're going to be, uh, we're going to have some fun today, okay? We're going to be in the book of James. If you want to turn over there to James chapter 1, put your finger right there. We'll, we'll get there here in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to be in, in the book of James, and it's this unlikely letter written by uh, Jesus' younger brother, that James. And uh, it's, it's an unlikely letter because, uh, you know, throughout... Throughout Jesus' ministry, James was, uh, he was an outspoken skeptic about his older brother right, being the Savior. I mean, he, he didn't believe that along with his other siblings. I grew up with an older brother, and so I'm sympathetic towards James that when his older brother claimed to be God, that James had a hard time believing that, you know? I mean, I think that's how a few fights started in the Ebling house when I was a little guy, you know? Older brother, I'm God, you will do what I say. No, I won't. So, so I get it. Right? But, but James has this miraculous transformation that takes place in his life. And it happens when, when his older brother Jesus, when, when he comes back from the grave, right, when he resurrects. And, and significant change tends to happen when somebody that you saw tortured and beaten to death, when they come back and they're better. Right? Something's got to give when, when you experience that. And, and James did, and, and something gave. And it was this skepticism. And he put his faith in, in Jesus, and, and he became a follower of Christ. Uh, he would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church. So just, I mean, incredible story. And, and then he writes this letter about the metamorphosis that's, that takes place in our lives when Jesus becomes the king, when he becomes God in our lives and, 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 and rules over us. And, and he writes about this. And what I, what I really enjoy about James is... Um, He's, he's just so practical, you know, in his writing. I mean, it is applied theology. He's not going to spend much time philosophizing or, or theorizing about faith. No, he, he's going to give us bottom-shelf theology, right? He's going he's gonna to say, look, this is, this is how faith meets with your day-to-day, okay? It, God changes everything, you know? He changes, he changes what you think and feel and do every day. Right, and, and I really enjoy that about James. James is that, he's that great uncle, you know, that never went to college, but he's the wisest person in the room, you know. And when James speaks, you want to listen, don't you? So James starts this letter in, in, at the beginning of chapter 1. He starts by talking about something that, that he frequently experienced as, as a believer, trials. And, and he writes to us about, about the fact that we're going to have hard times, there are going to be difficulties as a believer, and, and that we can learn to not just endure, but also to, to embrace and, and even enjoy that difficulty, those trials. And, and the reason we can do that is because we can know this one thing, that whatever else happens, that God has, has allowed that or even brought that trial into our lives to, to make us whole, to, to mature us, to grow us, to make us more like Christ. And so we can, we can embrace that and, and enjoy it. And then he says in verse 5, look, if you're, if you're in the middle of a trial and you don't know how on earth God could be using this, you know, you just, there's, there's no connection. Uh, and, and that happens a lot. He says, look, just pray and ask God for wisdom. Say, God, why, why are you letting this into my life now? What are you trying to transform about me? It must be something big because I don't get it. I'm not connecting the dots. And, and you can pray and ask God to do that. And then in, in the latter half of this chapter, James is, is going to start talking about temptation. 
But it's important to understand that he has not changed topics. He is still speaking of trials. And what he's going to tell us is he's going to say, look, when you're in the middle of a trial, okay, that's when, that's when uh, you're going to be most easily and successfully tempted. And why is that? Well, because as Vince Lombardi famously said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Doesn't it? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. I mean, it, it really is true. Because it's, it's when you have endured enough pain for enough time and, and you're exhausted by it that you begin to say to God, you begin to think in your heart and you say, God, do you, do you see what's happening here? I mean, are you looking at this? Are you watching? Because I've been praying about this and, and there's been no change. It hadn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. And, and we'll, we'll cry that out to God. And then, and then if there's no response or, or we don't see a response, then oftentimes our next thought is, okay, this is how it's going to be. Then I can't handle this anymore. And I'm done. And I'm going to have to take things under my control now. You know? I'm going to have to take care of me now. Because, God, I don't, I don't think you're doing that. Has fatigue ever gotten you to that place? Better question. How long has it been since a trial fatigued you and got you to that place where, where you were cowardly in, in the face of, of that and you saw some temptation and you said, I, I've got to find some other way? Because, God, you're not answering my prayer. You know, and, and we, will find ourselves, we will find ourselves fatigued and, and facing this, this kind of cowardice um, when, when you've prayed for a long time. Right, for that person that you want to spend forever with, that you want to experience for better or for worse with, and, and still there's no one. You know, or, or you've, you've tried again and again to, to have a little one, and nothing has happened yet. Or, or it happens when, when as far as it depends on you, you have tried to make peace with another person, and yet all that defines that relationship is still distance and, and anguish, and, and you, don't, you don't understand how and why. It happens when, when we pray not for uh, a shallow desire, you know, but a legitimate deep need of the soul, and, and still we don't see any movement. Nothing's happening. It happens when, when the deadlines that we have set for God um, have long passed, and, and there's still nothing. We still don't see him moving. We don't see anything. And it is at that moment, it is when we get to that place that, that the volume level of temptation is turned way up in our lives, isn't it? I mean, it's when we are absolutely exhausted by, by some difficulty, some troublesome season in our lives that, that temptation resonates most strongly in our souls. It calls out to us, and we can't ignore it. We have to listen, and, and we even feel like we have to follow it wherever it leads because, because fatigue makes cowards of us all. And what trials do is they make you easy prey for your passions, whatever those passions are. They make you easy prey to them. They make it easier for you to chase after some temptation. All right? And, and as you sit here right now, you know, you might be thinking, I'm doing okay. You know, the temptations that are sometimes in my life, they're, they're merely a faint whisper right now. I'm doing all right. But we've all lived long enough to know that, that that's just for right now. Right? That there's a trial that's coming that, that we don't know about, and it, it's probably going to be harder and longer than, than we even imagined it would be. You know, and it is when you find yourself in that, at that point and, and your, your body is exhausted, your soul is wearied, that, 
that, that temptation is going to be screaming at you and saying, come on, follow me. You know, and, and that voice, whatever that voice is, if it promises to ease the pain, to ease the ache in our souls, man, we, we want to follow it, don't we? And oftentimes we do. We chase after it. And even if it's to our own detriment or the detriment of, of those around us, we still chase it. Because fatigue makes cowards of us all. You know, your trials that you experience in life, they make you easy prey for your passions. And so the, the question that James is going to address, he's going to put in front of us this morning in this passage, is he's going to say, how, how do you escape temptation? How do I escape temptation when I'm faced? And more specifically, how, how do I flee from temptation when, when they are shouting loudest at me because, because I've endured pain for too long? You know, how do I successfully avert the sin that, that presses on me most forcefully when I'm being squeezed by life? And James is going to tell us, look, there's one thing that you can never do when you find yourself in that situation. And there are two things that you must always do every time. You're going to see these uh, come right out of this passage. And, and James is going to say the, the first thing that I want to make sure you never do when you find yourself tempted in the middle of a trial and, and, and wanting to follow that sin wherever it leads, the first thing I, I want to make sure you never do is don't blame God. He says don't blame God. Don't think that it is God who is tempting you to sin. And, and if you're in your Bibles, uh, James 1, verse 13, I mean, I'm plagiarizing this point. It is right out of that passage. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. See, James is saying, look, it is, it is inconsistent with the very nature of God that he would put a temptation in front of you and say, come on, just give it a try. God wouldn't do that. And, and we rationalize, we do, we rationalize that, that if God, if he would have answered our prayer, you know, if he would have, have taken us out of that awful job a long time ago when we asked him to, or, or if he had taken better care of our kids, or, or if he had answered that, again, that legitimate request that we made of him, if he had done that, that, that we wouldn't have been tempted, that, that we wouldn't have even been at a place where we would chase some sin. You know, and so, so we kind of point our finger at God and we say, you brought me here. You put me here. What else was I to do? And James says, please, please don't do that. Don't blame God. Now, does God test us? You know, does he bring trials into our lives in order to see what's in us? Yeah, you better believe he does, right? I mean, Moses says, he, he comes to the Israelites and he says, look, God, he brought you out into the wilderness because he wanted to test you. Deuteronomy 8, 2, it's, it's going to be up on the screens uh, Moses says this, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. It's a long test. To humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So you see, God sent Israel into the wilderness, and it was discipline, but it was also a test. And what God did quite literally is he, he turned up the heat, right, underneath their souls. And what was he doing? He was seeing what would bubble to the surface. What was in them? What would come out? He was putting them in a test. And so will God test us? Absolutely. He sure will. I mean, God, God will, will plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right across the street from your front door. He'll do that. But you know what he'll never do? He will never lean in and say, hey, you see the fruit on that tree? Looks pretty good, doesn't it? Go ahead. Take a bite. See what it tastes like. God will never do that. He will test you, but he will not tempt you. In fact, he plants that tree there, and then he plants a thousand other trees next to it that will more than fulfill you. He'd say, eat, enjoy, it's all yours, but not that one. 
and he'll do it to test us. That our God absolutely does that. James tells us that early in, in uh, chapter 1. What's God doing? Why does he test us? Maybe you've heard the old adage that smooth seas never made for a skillful sailor. All right, smooth seas never made a skillful sailor. No, what God will do is he will test us. He will put us in the middle of a trial because he's looking to make us better. Right? He's looking to make us stronger, more courageous, more trusting. He, he wants us to get to a place where we are desperate for the grace that he provides in our lives. He will bring us to a place of compassion and, and comfort for others who are going through their own rough seas. God will do that. Absolutely he will. And he's not the only one, right? I mean, have you ever known a, a good coach who didn't take her players and, and push them beyond what they thought they could handle in order to make them better players? I'll bet not. And there, there's never been a good parent who hasn't allowed his kids to, to face some difficult adversity and, and have to overcome it on their own. Yeah, good parents, good coaches, they do that. And, and they don't do it to set their children and their players up for, for failure, right? No, they're setting them up for success. Yeah, God will test us, but he will never set us up to lose. He does not work that way. That is not our God. He always sets us up to win, but he will test us. He wants to see what's in there. He wants to grow us, and he'll use that test to do that. And then James is, is going to say, after he says, look, don't blame God, okay? It is, that temptation, it did not come from him. He is not the source of it. Then he's going to say, well, where did that temptation come from? Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are lured away by their own evil desire and enticed. So where does that temptation come from? It comes from in here, doesn't it? Right? Don't blame God, he says. Look in. Look at you. What he's asking us is, is do you know yourself? You know, do you know what, what lures you in? Do you, know, do you know what entices you? Do you know what you run after? Because it's probably going to be different for each one of us. But he's asking us, do, how well do we know ourselves? And the person sitting next to you right now, if you don't know the answer to that question or you're trying to figure it out, they could probably tell you. I'll bet. You could ask them. Maybe you, you could you call the people that raised you and say, hey, what was I doing at, at five years old? Because whatever you're doing now is probably just an adult version of that, right? How did I deal with stress? How did I soothe myself? It probably hadn't changed that much, right? So, so that's what James is saying is, is do you know yourself? You have to know what entices you. Because if someone's going to break into your house, do they go through a wall? No. Nah. How about a, a bolted door? Not usually. Now, what do they go through? Go through a window, right? Because that's the easiest point of access. That's the weakest point. And so that's, what, that's how they're going to get into your house. You have to know what is your weakest point. What is that for you? If it's scotch and you've had a really discouraging day at work, do you stop by the liquor store on the way home? Absolutely not. In fact, you don't even drive by it, right? You take another route. Okay, you have to know what your scotch is. What is your weakest point? What entices you? And, and again, James is saying, look, it is different for each one of us, okay? He says, uh, he says look in, right? Look at you. Figure out, figure out how you're made. Figure out what your bent is. I mean, when you're on, on your way to go fishing out at Lake Travis and you drop by Academy, is there one little worm that, that they sell there that will catch every kind of fish in Lake Travis? No, there's not, right? I mean, there's 300 different lures and each designed to catch a particular kind of fish, right? So, so you have to know what, what is it that is going to bait me? 
right? What lures me in? And I've got to be honest, I've never been in a, in a troublesome season or, or just a really low point in my life and thought to myself, you know what would make this so much better is if I went shopping. Just, just spent a boatload of money on, on clothes and some other things I don't need. That's, that, that'll really help me. I've never thought that. I mean, you could tell by the way I'm dressed. That's not me. I've never once thought that. I'm too cheap to think that. But I can tell you what I have thought. I've thought, you know what would make me feel so much better right now? If I just let loose with some words that I don't get to say. That would that'd take the edge off just at least for a moment. I'd love to say one of those words. And, and, you know, maybe you hear that and you think, that's not me either. You know, that's, that's not what baits me. I've never thought to do that in the middle of a trial. You might even be thinking, man, this guy's got issues. And you'd be right. I, absolutely, I do. But, but the point is, we're all fish, aren't we? I mean, what, what baits you? What lures you in? What, what looks tasty to you when you're low and the pain has gone on for too long? What is that for you? That's what James is asking us to consider. He's saying, look in. Don't blame God. Okay? Don't blame God. You need to look in and, and see, see where the enemy is going to be coming after you. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Freedom of the Will, he agrees with, with this idea uh, that, that James has put forth, that, that the desire comes from within you. Don't blame God when you're tempted, okay? And this is what he says. He's talking about um, our, our free will that God's given us. And, and as he writes, this is what he says. Listen to these two sentences. They're, they're so powerful. Edward says, free will means you only and always do what you most desire to do. Free will means that you never, ever do anything but what you truly want to do. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the case? And so, so when we run after some temptation, we, we chase some sin down, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, thanks a lot, God. Where were you on that one? Now, I didn't want to do that, but you left me with no other choice. And Edward says, no, 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 that, that's not how it works. He says, look, you, you wouldn't have, have chased down that lure if it's not what you wanted, right? In fact, it was what you most wanted, and if it wasn't, you wouldn't have chased it. Edwards is agreeing with James. He's just saying, look, look inside. Look at you. Know what lures you and know what entices you. So, so that's the first thing that, that James is going to tell us is that, that we cannot blame God when we're tempted towards sin. No, instead, we need to look at us. We need to expunge this belief from our hearts that because God tests us, he also has tempted us. Uh, that, those, two, those two dots, they can't be connected, James says. But you need to look in and understand yourself better, James says. And then, and then his, his second point is he says, look, you need to look up. You need to look up. Verses 16 and 17, James says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So what he says is, is you look up, and, and instead of seeing a God who is the source of your temptation, you look up and, and you see a God about whom this will never change, that he is a, a kind dad. And that he always has and always will only give you good gifts because you're his kids. And that's the kind of dad he is. We need to believe that at the, at the very depths of our soul to be true about him. And, and that's what James is telling us when he says, hey, you need to look up. Look at God, this giver of good and perfect gifts. And notice in verse 16 at the beginning, he says, don't be what? Don't be deceived. Temptation. Doesn't it start with deception? It starts with, uh, really, it, it starts with bad theology. It, it starts with wrong beliefs about the nature of God, who he is and, and who he's not, 
Right? That's, where, well, that's where temptation always starts. It is, it is these wrong beliefs about God and who he is. And, and what is that lie that we tend to believe? That God's not all that good, that he won't take care of us, that he doesn't know what's best. Right? I mean, think about the very first temptation, how that takes place back in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, it starts with deception, doesn't it? Because what the enemy does, what the serpent does is, is he comes toward, uh, toward Eve and, and, and he doesn't grab a piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and lower it a little bit so that she's looking at it and say, hey, look at that fruit. Doesn't that look delicious? He doesn't do that. No, because he's smarter than that. No, no, what he does is he says four words. He says, did God really say? All right? It starts with deception. He says, did God really say that you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no. That's not what God said, right? It's not what God said. God said, you may eat from any tree in the garden except this one. He starts with a lie about who God is. And he gets Eve wondering, questioning, God, do you, do you know what I need? Do you, are you, are you, do you have my best interests at heart? Do you care about me? And she decides no. I can't trust you. Temptation, it starts with deception. So James says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Please, please don't, don't let the enemy, don't let someone else convince you that, that God is something or someone other than he is. It, it, so how do you move beyond the deception? You know, when you find yourself in that place of, of being utterly exhausted and, and just worn out by the trial that you're in, how do you, how do you believe what is true? Well, in the book, uh, in the novel, Jane Eyre, written by Charlotte Bronte, is actually a recent film as well. In, in Jane Eyre, what you find with the main character, Jane, is, uh, is that she finds herself in, in the middle of an incredibly difficult time in her life and being tempted towards sin. And uh, guys, I know that, that a lot of you probably just zoned out, um, and, and that's okay for the next minute and a half or so. I'll let you know when to come back in. But what happens in this novel is that Jane Eyre, she, she meets a man, and he's a married man, and he's not married to her. He's got a wife, and she's back at home, but she's physically incapacitated. And so this man moves towards uh, Jane, and, and he says to her, he says, come and be with me. Come and be mine. Come, and I'll love you. And, and as, as she is tempted to run away with this married man, Jane thinks, kind of to herself, she's having this internal dialogue take place. And this is what she says. Uh, so it, it, I think it's so insightful in, into where we are too. She says, while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime and resisting him. They spoke as loud as feeling and they clamored wildly. They said, think of his misery, soothe him, save him, love him. Tell him you love him and, and that you'll be his. And then listen to these two questions she asked herself. She says, who in the world cares for you? Who looks out for you? She goes on, who will be injured by what you do? And still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself, she says. The more unstained I am, the more I will respect myself. And then listen here. She says, I will keep the law given by God. I will hold to the principles I received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. She said, laws and principles are not for times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in, in mutiny against their rigor. If, it, if at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane. 
with my veins running with fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by, but there I plant my foot. And then she says, and I did. All right, men, come on back now. We're moving on. But, but you see what happens with Jane when, when she is, is, is tempted by what looks amazing to her in this moment, when she is tempted by that. What does she ask? What are the two questions that she wonders? What are the two questions of her soul that, that are the questions of our soul? Does anyone look out for me? Does anyone in the, in the world care for me? Right? And, and the reason she's asking those is because she's thinking, no, no one does. But then her final answer could also be ours. She says, I will keep the law given by God. I will hold to the principles I received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. You see, it's, it's when you're sane and when the seas around you are calm that you need to convince your soul, you need to convince your very heart that, that God is a good God. And you believe that with, with all of your being. Because if you wait until the madness comes and the insanity, right, and life is just blitzing you, if you wait until that moment, that, that is no time to negotiate God's goodness. You will not come up with the right answer more than likely. You've got to do it now. If, if now is, is a calm time in your life, you say, God, convince my soul of this truth that you are good and, you, and that you care for me, right, that you look out for me. And, and James would say, yeah, look up. And when you look up, you see your heavenly father and you see sitting at his right hand is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who went before you, who took the blows that we should have received. You look up and you see Jesus Christ, the one who took the wrath of the Father that we might be forgiven. You look up and you see Jesus Christ. He is, he is the one who was broken and splintered so that we might be made whole. Yet you look up now while you're still sane and you see the Son and you see his Father and you say, you know what, God, I do. I believe that you are not just good, you are ultimate goodness and that you do care for me, that you do look out for me. And you convince your soul of that now so that when, when those seas get rough, you can say with Jane Eyre, you can say, on that unmovable truth, I plant my foot. Right? So it's what we all want to do, isn't it? I mean, in the middle of a trial, we, we want to be unmovable because of the goodness of God, this, this father of ours that gives good and perfect gifts. We want to we be there. I mean, think about, about your heroes in, in your favorite movies. Right? Isn't that what true, is true about them? Probably. Right? That, that they showed valor uh, when, when they had some deep inner conviction that, that spoke to them, that, that spoke for them, when everything in them wanted to compromise. Right? They showed courage at a time when, when the seas were roughest. You know, and, then, and then just think ahead a little bit, you know, just 20, 30 years down the road. Right? And think about who do you want to be? Who do you want to be in that moment? How do you want your, your children to know you? How do you want your grandkids to know you? And then you look back to, to that moment when you're in the middle of that trial and you say, yeah, I, I want to plant my foot on that truth that God is good and that I can look to him. I don't have to chase some sin. Whatever's, whatever does bait me, I can, I can swim away from it. I can flee from it because I know a God who is good. So James is saying, look, look, the first thing you never do when you're tempted to sin, don't blame God. Instead, look in, look at you, see what entices you, what draws you away. And then second, he says, you need to look up, right? You need to look up and you need to see your father 
who is in heaven, who only gives good and perfect gifts, that will always be true about him. It will never change. And then finally, he says, look, you need to look out. You need to look out. And, and James, look, he's saying that this sin that we chase, whatever it is, you can be sure of this, that it is going to take you to a place that you don't want to be. There, there are, are flashing red lights in this, these next verses because James is cautioning us. He is warning us that if we continue down that path, that it will not go well. In fact, it will end in a way that we don't want it to. And, and look in, at verse 14 and then the beginning of verse 15. He says, James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Right? He says, look, you better look out. And James is using graphic imagery in this passage because he's trying to warn us that, of the dangers of, of toying with sin. And what James is, is trying to convince us of is that, that this evil desire that, that is enticed towards some temptation that, that, that calls out to us and says, run after it. Go. Go get it. He's saying when that evil desire and that temptation meet, there's, there's a birth that takes place. And what is birthed out of that is sin. And he's saying it, that sin, sure, it starts small. And, and sin almost always does, doesn't it? I mean, it starts small and it's manageable and, and it's under control and, and we've got this and, and no one's going to find out. We'll be able to stop whenever we really want to stop, right? We convince ourselves of that. So I, I got this. I'm okay. Right? And, and James says, you know what, but, but that, that sin, that tiny little sin that you coddle, that you hold on to, that you protect and you manage, he says, look, it's, it is growing, whether you realize it or not. It is growing and it will become an adult one day. And when it becomes an adult, you know what? There's going to be an, another pregnancy. There's going to be another birth. And then look at, at what, what is birthed out of that. In verse 15, the, the second part of it, he says, Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It gives birth to death. We've all read stories about, about uh, people who raise exotic animals in their home or, or use them for performances, right? And, and uh, these families that will take in a baby chimpanzee and um, and it's, I mean, they're so cute and, and, I mean, irresistibly cute when they're tiny, right? Um, uh, performers who will, who will take in these exotic pets of some kind and raise them from little babies on and, and then use them in their shows. And, and we know enough of those stories to know that it usually does not end well. All right, Siegfried and Roy, they, they raised baby Bengal tigers. Uh, they did that for, for 13 years. And they would adopt these little Bengal tigers and, and they would raise them and, and train them to be part of their show and, and, and it went on great for 13 years without incident. But then at, at 13 years and one day, one of those little Bengal tigers had grown up. And he decided that he was done performing for audiences. And he chased Roy down and he clamped his enormous jaws around Roy's neck and he didn't let go. And he wasn't being cruel, right? He was just being a Bengal tiger. That's what they do. You see, if you get in the ring with a Bengal tiger, it's not if, it's, it's just when. When is this going to explode in my face? And, and that's what happened for Roy with that baby Bengal tiger that had grown up. And so, so look, you know, I want you to think about your life, if you would, please. And, and if, if, you know, you, you run after lying, right, and, and when it's convenient, when it's seeming, seemingly insignificant, you're okay telling a little bit of an untruth, and, and you think, you know, I can, I can stop whenever I'm, whenever I'm ready. I got this. I'm okay. James is going to say, look, that, that little sin, it is growing in your life, 
And, and at the end of that road, there's going, there's going to be a death. And you're going to show up at work and, and you're going you're gonna to start telling some untruths. And, and there could be a death there. You could lose your job or you could come home and be dishonest at home. And, and James says you could lose your, your marriage over this. He says there's, there is death waiting at the end of that road. Would you look out? That little sin is not going to stay. It, it's not going to stay little. Okay? It's growing. Or if you, if you jump online, you know, and, and you start clicking around until you find some things that you want to see because you're just trying to take the edge off. You're just trying to, to find a little bit of, of peace from the pain and the frustration you're experiencing at, at home or at work. And you think, you know what, I can, I can stop this whenever I want. James is saying, would you please look out? Okay, because this sin, it is taking you to places that you don't want to go. And you can't see that yet. And, and you've convinced yourself that marriage is going to cure this, and it won't. And your soul is hardening as we speak. And, and you, could, you could lose a marriage. You could lose a family. You could lose the respect of your kids. He's saying, look out. Death is at the end of that road. Would you get off of it? Turn around. Flee. Look out, he says. Please stop. All right, so James says, says look, these temptations that come in the middle of a trial... First, please make sure you don't blame God. Okay, look in, look at you. Get to know yourself and what you're going to chase. And then he says you, you also, you need to look up. You convince your soul while it's calm, while it's, it's safe, that God is good and that's what he'll always be in your life and that you can trust him. And then finally he says you look out. Okay, you see that that little sin is not going to stay little. It's growing in your life and, and there's death waiting for you if you keep protecting it. Hey, I, so I want you to, to think about what is, what is this little sin that I'm taking care of and I'm managing and I'm protecting and I'm keeping safe and that I've got control of? What is that sin for you? What, what, is, what is growing in your life? All right, because that's what James is asking you to consider. I mean, it's the story of Frankenstein, isn't it? All right, the, the scientist who builds a, a monster to serve him. And then in the end, what happens? The monster destroys his life, just ruins it. All right, James says, whatever sin you use to take you to some other place and to make you feel some other way, when it gets you there, it's going to, it's going to clamp its enormous jaws down on your neck, and then it will be too late. He says, please look out, okay? Don't blame God. Look in, and then, and then look up to see this God of yours that's good, and then, and then make sure you see that death is coming if you keep protecting the sin, if you allow it to stay in your life. To close, I just want to, uh, to share, uh, you know, a quick story from the, the novel Unbroken. Maybe some of you guys have read it. It's based on a true story. It's about Louis Zamperini. I will not give the ending away. It's going to be a movie in a month. I can't wait to see it. Uh, but but in, this, uh, in this story, Louis Zamperini, he was, uh, he was an Olympic athlete and then ends up being an airman in, in World War II, okay? And he's on this bomber that ends up uh, crash landing in the Pacific. And, and everybody dies except for Zamperini and two other men. And they end up in, in the kind of a struggle for survival. They end up in the trial of their lives, at least to that point, because they're on a life raft out in the middle of the Pacific. Nobody knows where they are. And they're out there for 43 days. And there were so many ways that they could die out there, right? Star starvation, drowning. They literally had sharks leaping into their life raft. They were having to beat away with an oar. And then there was the thirst, you know, and it was just cruel because they were surrounded by a sea of water. And they were thirstier than they ever imagined they could be, and yet, and yet they couldn't even take a drink. 
And yet, as, as Zamperini's body, as, as it cried out to him in desperation, saying, please, just, uh, just one sip. Come on, give us that, would you? Zamperini, you know what he doesn't do? He, he doesn't blame God for being tempted towards something that, that he knows he shouldn't be moving towards. He doesn't shake his fist at God. And he knows enough to look out. He knows that if he takes even just a sip of that, that sure, it'll fill him for a second, but, but it will lead to dehydration unto death really quickly. And then finally he looks up and he prays maybe for the first time in his life and he says, God, God, if you will quench our thirst just, just for the moment, I will dedicate my life to you. I'll be all yours. And the next day the skies break open and it rains. And two more times Zamperini will pray. And two more times it will rain. Friends, trials, they're coming, aren't they? They're already here. That is certain. The only uncertainty is will we be ready when they get here? Will we be ready for them? We can be. Let's pray that we would be. Would you guys pray that with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you... um, Maybe not desperate right now, Lord, but we know that we'll come to a desperate place soon. And Father, I ask uh, first that, that you would speak to us, each one of us, right where we are. And, and Lord, that you would, um, you would whisper truth, Lord, into our souls, into our hearts, and into our minds. Truth about who you really are, that we would, we would hold on to that, we would grip onto that, so that when our veins are running with fire, Lord, that we would be able to say, I I plant my foot on this truth that you are good and that you know what you are doing and that I can trust you. Lord, I pray that for each one of us. I pray that we wouldn't point our finger at you, Lord, but that we would look up to you for help and that, that we, would, we would begin to understand ourselves. You would give us insight into who we are and how we've been made and what our, our bents are and, and what we're going to chase, Lord, that we might, uh, we might flee before we even get close. And, and then help us to see, Lord, if there's something in our lives that is unaddressed, there's some sin in there that, that calls after us, calls, calls our name, Lord, that uh, we'd look down the road just a little bit, that we would, we would look out and know that death is coming. Lord, get us off that road, please. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.